2: Visit the Bedfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD85 in Frederick, right next to Longshot's Off-Track Betting. Go to betfredsports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Greetings, one and all, and welcome to Moments That Rock, a proud member of the Pantheon Group of Podcasts. I'm your host, Tony Mike Leadis. I spent three decades working in the music industry, running my own PR company, and working as a publicist. For you, 2 The Police, Depeche Mode, David Bowie, New Order, Peter Gabriel, Genesis, blah, 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 blah. If you want to know more, feel free to visit my website at www.tonymikeleadis.com. Each week, we'll strive to bring you a cornucopia of musical delights, all based around storytelling. There's archive interviews from back in my radio days with the likes of the Ramones, Steve Wimwood, the Cramps, U2, etc., etc. And we also have some great stories from some industry insiders. Right, intro done. I'm with the show. Welcome to the bit where we plunder the archives and dig deep and find interviews from way back then. And today's way back then... Is part two of an interview I did with Joey and Dee Dee from the Ramones from 1988. Sadly, both those guys have passed away since. So together with the memories, it's tinted with a little bit of sadness. The Ramones are a great band.
1: You were always, well, I say always, you were in your heyday popular without actually being fashionable. Isn't that true? Yes, we rejected um
3: fashion when the when the punk rock scene really caught on like we didn't cut our hair short and um, like a lot of the groups looked great, like the sex pistols really dress good and everything. But we didn't want to dress like that, because we started out as an anti-glitter group. We were, it was our reaction to glitter, but, which is strange, because we were very big fans of glitter. But then it just got ridiculous, where the Allman Brothers started going to Granny Takes a Trip and buying glitter jackets. And you know, it was like, um, who's that guy who stars in Oh God, that country-western singer? Never mind. He, he started dressing up in glitter too. Oh, the John Denver. John Denver, right. John Denver started dressing up in glitter, so we had to do something different. You know, We put on leather jackets and jeans.
2: You've been listening to Way Back Then, a podcast featuring archive interviews and fireside chats with music industry veterans. On today's podcast... Joey and Dee Dee from the Ramones, an interview that dates back to 1986. And here's some more. A lot of our sort of
1: most successful bands from the mid to late 70s, like the Pistols, the Buzzcocks, the Clash, they all seem to burn themselves out. I mean, the the, the Stranglers are back, but they're a very different act. The Buzzcocks, sadly. No longer, but probably just out to make money now, you
3: know, they're getting old and they're ready to retire and they're trying to make a buck But I I think they're good, you know, I like the new single, but I it is soft You know, well, we made a we made a hard album. Our album is hard you know? and um, We you know, like going back to producing like we, we may have used a lot of producers, but now we've learned how to produce ourselves and so like every song like whoever writes the song the person in the band sort of produces the song too you know like there's much more involvement with the band As you all yeah. contribute I bits sit, of writing I sit right behind the board when they do one of my songs you know and i i sit through the mixing and so does joey he he puts all his ideas into the songs and we know what we're doing now we're very
1: you know we really know what we're doing well, that's nothing wrong with confidence, um, Joey. Can I ask you that you're saying like um, we were talking about producing, and of course Dave Stewart has produced Howling at the Moon. Now, this was in fact because he was a Ramones fan, not because you wanted a a popular British pop star to
4: produce. You correct? Right. No, he's he's been a fan of us for years. As a matter of fact, he, him and Annie had a band, '77, The Taurus, which were very reminiscent of the Ramones, you know, and uh, he just he had heard the song and he wanted it he, he liked the song it was i guess his personal favorite you know and uh, he wanted to get involved and he he just did it you know because he didn't he didn't ask for any payment of any sort you know he just did it course uh, he wanted to do it you know and so you know we, we had a meeting to see you know if we liked his ideas and this and that and you know we thought it, it you know we thought the guy's great you know i mean he had matter of fact his initial ideas you know like he he wanted us to sound like the Ramones. he didn't want us to sound like anything else or the eurythmics or dave stewart or whatever and um you know he wanted it to be very stark and yet very dynamic which it is it it starts off very stark but then it explodes when the guitar comes in and you know it's i think it's great and it was fun to work with him. and he's he's a good guy and uh He's very worldly and all. He's very talented, you know. Do
1: you think it was the right first single to put off the album to reintroduce people to the Ramones, or maybe get some new fans? I don't know, but um, it was real successful in
3: America. In L- on LIR, it got to number one on the station's playlist, and um, it was it won Screamer of the Week over all the big groups. It's It's hard to win that contest, and we won it. And uh, every city we'd go to, we'd turn on the radio and there it would be, you know, and that was really nice. But now they're putting out Chase in the Night and maybe maybe that's the single, you know. We we don't really know, but we're going to
1: play it now. Tom Dilemma, I always thought, could well be a good little single. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I like that one. Um. Oh, just look up. You were uh, talking then, Dee Dee, about American radio, and uh, there's so many sort of college radio stations, etc., etc. Now, what about MTV in the states? It's so important. How do they take to guys like you? They don't like us. They don't take well to us. They
3: they banned our video. But you're white. Well, they that doesn't matter. They're they're prejudiced against us anyway, and they banned our video, and I don't you like. did
1: make a dodgy video in the past, though, didn't you? You think they're a bit wary of, of you know, your past.
3: Well, they they are two-faced. They, they invite you to their parties, and they send you tapes and everything and try and be all buddy-buddy. But then they only play your video at six
4: o'clock in the morning when everybody's sleeping you know, they're into the they're into safe you know the safe sterile things you know they're into
3: Kenny things Ryan. they
4: can they can package like billy idol and madonna and you know and then you know and all the, the english bands all these synthesizer bands you know they like safe things you know you know they're maybe they're threatened by us i don't know but uh i mean i i felt if anybody should Get behind us. It, w- it would be MTV because I felt they were sort of doing something, rev- you know, something new. And they, I mean, and um, I sort of in a in a sense it was almost like you know sort of like the BBC in a sense where it bridges of the country together. I mean, even though you guys only have, you know limited it with the radio, but that but that's cool because also that was good because everybody gets to hear everything you know, and they can make up their own minds if they want to buy it or not, or they want to get into it or not. You know, but you know, like America, so stretched out there's, everything is regional but MTV b- bridged the country together you know and, and it's the perfect place to expose new talent or ideas or something but they, they, they didn't do it they just you know played it safe and you know
1: but at least you do have the choice in america with the radio don't you i always thought you would have been quite popular on on the college radio circuit we we
4: we're, we're very popular on well, our, our album's number seven in rolling stone yeah. well, it, on it, it the came, chart it came in number two and when it you know first was released you know and that's great you know i mean you know we were in heavy on heavy airplay on the college stations, and then they have alternative stations you know and we, you know, are getting really good airplay on the alternative station, but not too much on the on the mainstream stations. So, so everything is, uh, you know, every, the, everything is sort of uh, they have ten plays, you know, like the major, the foreigners and stuff, and.
1: So, you're here doing your four London nights, and uh, Tuesday sees the whistle test, which I should imagine is quite important to you. Um, After that, you're going to Europe, is that right, Didi? Yes, well, Joey and I are going to Paris for a little vacation. Oh, just the two of you? Yeah. And uh, we're sending John home. (laughs) That sounds as though they need a vacation Uh, back home. Right. And then what, um, you said you were going to possibly come back in June, I mean...
3: Uh, oh,
4: we are.
1: We're coming back in June, we're going to do some festivals in Britain, and uh,
4: we'll do a lot of dates, you know, I... Like yeah, no, well, it's, you know, sort of up in the air, but our, our um, promoter here, John Giddings, he was mentioning maybe we're going to do um, some festivals with you 2 or something like that.
1: Well, that shouldn't be a bad thing. I mean, they've got a fairly uh, massive following. have g- the same kind of audience as them. They're well, the thing about U2 fans is I don't think they're partisan. They're not going to say, like, get off the Ramones, we want U2. They're going to give you your fair share and, and you can win them over. It's a massive audience.
3: Oh, that doesn't happen. I don't think that don't. You know, we always go over pretty well.
1: No, but some bands, I think uh, they we don't want to see play somebody that. playing with their heroes, we, do they? We even played for the um, the US Festival,
3: and it was like uh, seven hundred and fifty thousand people, all Fleetwood Mac fans, and they loved us. You know, like, um, I don't. It was we we, we were, Once people see us, they like us. You know.
1: Well, listen, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. I'm sure you've got plenty of things to do and plenty of other people to talk to. Thanks very much.
2: Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Way Back Then is part of Moments That Rock, where we dig deep into the archives, dust them down and deliver them. More archive interviews next week. There's a whole bunch of rock stars who work behind the scenes, and they have some great stories. Insider Insights takes you inside their world, for their stories and their rock star moments. Today's guest is Paul Conroy, talking to you about his illustrious career in the music industry. This is part two. If you go back and look at uh, earlier podcasts, you'll find part one. Well worth listening to. So, let's pop back in and listen to Paul talk about that little-known combo called... The Spice Girls. Obviously, coming from the school of pub rock and getting to know the artists and things, and then you know Elvis Costello right from the start and things like that, and then the Spice Girls and things. I mean, I suppose it's, it really helps when you start your label, when you've kind of got that school of artist development behind you, and you've kind of been there and done it, so you know how to nurture and guide um, the artist. Did you effectively manage and have be the label with those people?
5: Um, well, I think they always looked at me and my experience that I had working with different artists. I didn't manage at, at, at that time, but I, what, what, what was I at Virgin? I was the managing director, stroke president, and, um, you know, they all came to me with their sub stories. And, I mean, for me, it was Tony Gordon who managed, um, who managed George Michael came to me one day and said as he did very often he wanted to get his royalty check early so he would get his commission and in best uh, practice which is really what i picked up off dave robinson i said so tony what's happening i won't do my dave robinson accent but i said tony uh, what's happening you know anything else out there he said well i've been approached to manage these girls um and uh I don't think I'm going to get them. I think they're really good, though. Uh, I think Simon Fuller's going to manage them. And they're called the Spice Girls. So I went up to Ashley Newton in the A&R department and said, do you know about these girls called the Spice Girls? Because I've just heard from Tony Gordon, they're really good. Should we get them in? And that's where the story started with the Spice Girls. And the rest is history. Um, And at at the point we got them in, they came and see Ashley and I, and they sort of performed, and Jerry sat on my lap, and, <laughs> <laughs> um, and that was the end of that. Um, and I, having oh, I was working with Ray Cooper, as my right hand man, and I said to Ashley, "We should get Ray over for this." And Ray came over and saw them perform as well. And uh, that's where we um, we had to do a dog and pony show to sign them, um, and we had to prove to Simon Fuller that we were going to be. Uh, Virgin was going to be a good enough label uh, to to break them in America because Simon's view was always to break them worldwide and uh, that's the start of the story of the Spice Girls.
2: Yeah I mean I suppose like you hope uh, you've signed something that's going to do well but I mean little did you know really what the kind of extent of something like that worldwide I mean it was just a phenomenon wasn't it?
5: Oh, it was, it was, I had, of all the acts I've worked with over the years, I'd never seen anything happen quite like this. And it was hard to explain to the girls themselves because um, they were brilliant. I don't think guys would have ever worked as hard as those girls did. They went all around the world. And when you needed them to go and do an MTV performance in Stockholm or something extra, you know, they would do it. And Simon was great as well. He was really on it. I remember going to have a meeting with him. He was in hospital for some small operation, and and he got me and the girls in together to talk to them about, you know, doing and they were absolutely knackered because they'd gone around the world um uh, a number of times and it was just said, look, we just need a little bit more of you. We just need a little bit more of you to do this, and you know, would you go and do that? Um, and so it was quite remarkable. I mean that. Ashley Newton and I had discussed how we were going to start start them, and there was no real history of um, you know the the, one of those great unwritten laws of showbiz, music, whatever you want to call it, was that girls don't you know girl groups don't really sell records. And uh, up until that point, there was probably an element of that. If you took out the Supremes or Martha and the Vandals, but you know it was like a pop girl group had never really sold records worldwide and um so it, ashley and i wanted to start them abroad to get them you know credibility and so at that time shampoo had been quite successful for emi and they'd started them in japan and we thought well let's start them in japan and that's where really the spice girl started we did a we did put the, the single and uh we started it out in you know building them up Via, via japan and um, but when when we had the hit in england and i've got to say all three of us uh, who were running virgin at the time were a little bit worried about wannabe being the first single um because it, it was a playground chant. but the girls were were definitely convinced that was the one and so we we, we obviously went with it and um, Oh my God, I remember seeing them the first day they went off to do some local radio promo. They were going off to BBC Radio Oxford or something. And it was about, I came in at seven in the morning and they were all getting coffees from the canteen and going off on a minibus to, to, to go and uh, do this radio interview. And they were so excited because they were like a coiled spring. They'd been waiting for such a long time to, uh, to get out and promote and they were brilliant. I mean, you know, I've been lucky over the years. If I think of the artists that I've worked with, be it Phil Collins, be it Loaf, be it uh, the Spice Girls, be you know, all the best acts were those who were prepared to really you know, go out and go beyond what was needed to promote their art, I suppose
2: yeah i mean it's uh i mean i like i say working in the industry myself at that time and seeing it i mean i think another plus and you mentioned that they um you know how they went about things and they wanted that to come out out as a single what about simon fuller and his input because simon well they probably didn't even realize at the time what they'd been able to land with management because i mean it it doesn't come much better does it the guy's a genius and he is a brilliant guy to work with because he listens um, and he delivers. And I think, you know, you, I, I, I kind of think you never have a great artist without a great manager. I mean, if you look at Michael Littman, look at Paul McGuinness and stuff, it's no secret that, that those acts, like, fulfill their potential. Because, you know, you have to be able to work with the record company executives. I think what I see from those times, Paul, is is the advantage as well with the Spice Girls. You wouldn't call them a music act. They were full-on entertainment. But yeah. they worked with music uh, people at the high end of the record companies and I mean you Ray and Ashley rather than with respect going and working with some accountants and lawyers at some other label. so I think it was the perfect marriage the Spice Girls.
5: Yeah no I mean Simon I remember going out with my wife with Simon uh, for dinner one night before I think we'd just signed the girls and he said well let's go out to dinner to celebrate or whatever and we sat with him and he was listening to our ideas we were listening to his it was a great team that got me the, the, the girls were very lucky because they got they got a uh, they got a team uh, who were really working to the, you know to their best um and with ray he was a great marketeer with ashley um he, he helped really helped them hone and make the records and i was able to push the button and get get everyone uh, clued up not only in the UK but around the world so um, but it was very very exciting but I did live live for four to five years of getting up in the morning and getting all the, the, the national papers because it was like oh. oh my god what have they done now or what, what story have they got on them and there was always something I mean it was it was I mean you know it was the Beatles of that of the time because the girl power and everything the influence they had. it was it was the time still of physical uh, releases uh, you know so you'd put out 12 inch versions you put out cassette versions you do this you do that we knew uh you know we would build up the radio and the video interest we'd have smash hits behind us it was it was a very exciting time to be in, in a record company and um Now, a lot of these things are more hidden with social media and and different types of trickery, I suppose. Did I say trickery? (laughs) Um, I don't think I did. Did you say trickery? (laughs) Um, But, you know, we knew how to work records. I mean, I can remember being away one Christmas on the beach somewhere. I'll say it's Antigua. And waiting (laughs) for the charts to come through. And it was like... It was the time we got the, you know, three number three Christmas number ones in a row, and it was like, I was walking up and down the beach, like, oh my God, will we get it? Will we, won't we get it? And uh, it was just brilliant. I mean, uh, you you walked with a real spring in your step, and it was nice to get uh, plaudits from people just to say, great job, and it was a great job. Simon, though, was was the glue who kept it all together. And it was it was a pleasure working with him, and I think the way he's he guided Annie Lennox's career, uh, you know, without overselling her, and they made great videos and everything. Um, Now I think he's a he's a very measured man. I mean, when Simon said to me, the girls were off and running, and he knew that they probably, um, you know, how long the career would last, they'd burn themselves out at some point. And I remember him bringing in a guy and, uh, you know, they, they, they did Cadbury's cream eggs and they did this and they did that. And he brought. All this. And I thought, Simon, you're going to overkill it. You're going to overkill it. But he, what he did, he brought so much money in for the girls. I mean, the one story with the girls, which is uh, was quite remarkable. I was going to work one day and I came around Chippers Bush Green and there's a McDonald's on Shepherd's Green. And Green and this was before, long before we'd launched the girls. I think we just signed them and we were just getting started. And I saw the front window of McDonald's and Shepherd's Grace Green. I saw this thing saying Spice Burger. And I thought, <laughs> the Lord has arrived. And I thought, so I rang up McDonald's and I said to them, I see you're launching this thing called Spice Burger. Well, we've got this group called the Spice Girls. And I went up to uh mcdonald's offices somewhere up in north london and i remember walking in and this shag piled carpet and seeing all the pictures on the wall with the with the uh you know best team leader of the month award and you know someone who sold more burgers than anyone else. and i went to see the marketing director and i told him the story about the spice girls and i told him what was happening and i told him i said they're going to be enormous you know, you know you know maybe there's something we could do together and he looked at me like I was a teddy boy and um sort of virtually showed me the door so I thought I thought I wonder where that guy is now yeah you know because he missed such an opportunity um but it was things like that but I, you know over the years my, my my skills of anything has come from um really working with groups on the road um, listening to their um their moans and groans uh, working you know with the likes of fly posters to make sure we got the best fly posters spots around London um, marketing generally Jake would always give me enormous grief if we didn't get the best page in the NME when we were taking an ad he'd scream at me and, and whatever um, but I learned it by the seat of my pants and Unfortunately, I'm not sure that that's sort of... You know, you learn by your own mistakes as well. I made loads of mistakes. I made loads of mistakes, you know. I just think of the axe we could have signed at Stiff that we never saw. <laughs> and I remember, oh, being in Dublin, I'm, part, I'm not thinking that much of you too at one
2: point. On this week's show, we were talking to music executive Paul Conroy about his vast and plentiful career. And just to bring you up to date with Paul's recent activity as in Wikipedia, I'll read this. Conroy now resides in Henley, Oxfordshire, and Gozo. That's in Malta. More recently, Paul has acted as a consultant for Universal Music on issues related to catalogue artists and the setting up of the website You Discover. And he's also consulted for leading advertising agencies in placement for music and various commercials. He's also involved in a possible Netflix series. I can't tell you much more about that. Well, he'll act as executive producer. Insider Insights is a regular weekly feature in Moments That Rock. It's where we talk to behind the scenes people in the music industry and let them share their stories. More next week. 92% of households that start the year with Peloton
1: are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike, not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess, for elite
0: athletes only. Right. Nope.
1: It doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton bikes, tread or row, risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only, not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com home dash trial.
0: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.